Amen. Thank you, Matt. And I just want to say at the outset, if you're expecting a great thing in the preaching, well, <laughs> prepare for disappointment. But I do want to welcome you to worship this morning, of whether you're on the second floor or whether you're on the third floor here or whether you're watching at home remotely, we're glad that you're here and not uh, somewhere out there frozen with your tongue stuck to a light pole because that's a bad look, bad optic, we say these days. Perhaps you, like me, have had some opportunities, some, had some extra time to do some thinking, some imagining this last week or so as we've been sort of socked in. And by the way, there's nothing quite as great as being socked in with limited power and water when you mix in a little pandemic and all of that. That's sort of like, okay, great. So maybe you've had some time to do some imagining. I want you to imagine, just sort of give yourself to the narrative, give yourself to the story, and I want you to imagine that you and your family are about to take a great grand journey, a big, huge family trip. So you know how this goes, guys especially, you know how this goes, right? You go and you get your, your cartography chart that was crudely sketched out by Lewis and Clark circa 1815, and you begin to sort of figure out the terrain, and you kind of say, well, there's, there's going to be some canyons over yonder, and we've got to ford that stream, that's right, and then you go, and you, you tend to the horses, you get the team all rigged up together, and you, and you get the wagon, and you get it nice and covered, and you hook the team of the horses to the wagon, because it's going to be a big time family trip, and you tell the kids, all right, kids, it's time for you to load all those provisions in the back of the wagon for our trip, you know, get all them turnips and taters and lard. It's going to be great. Yes, sir. It's going to be quite a journey. We're going to set out and, you know, of course, weather permitting and assuming that, you know, Comanches don't kill us like our neighbors did last year, but it's going to be a great, great journey. It's about that time that you happen to notice that your spouse is getting dizzy from all the eye rolls she's giving you. She says, um, by the way, you do know that we actually have a gas-powered SUV with a combustion engine and leather seats, and you can literally drive it a thousand miles in a day. Did, did you know that? And, and by the way, that map you're using is from literally two centuries ago. And, and by the way, did you know that we actually have smartphones with GPS navigation? And they come preloaded now with Candy Crush so that we can play while we're going on this long trip. Did you know that? You're like, well, hold on a second. The oh, by the way, changes everything. When you get that new crucial bit of information, you don't travel and do things the way you used to do them. Well, that's an over-exaggeration, but it makes the point of what we're going to be looking at this morning in Ephesians chapter 3. We get, perhaps, the greatest, oh, by the way, interruption in all of Scripture and, therefore, in all of human history because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. What we're going to find out is that misinformation always leads to misaction, foundationally, misinformation or misunderstanding always produces misaction and behavior. So this, quite candidly and transparently, is going to be the most dicey and tricky of all the texts in the book of Ephesians. It's this one. 
Not all texts are created equally. This one is probably the trickiest. So we're going to read through this passage, try to understand what it is exactly that the Apostle Paul is trying to get for the people in Ephesus to understand. What he's trying to say in a nutshell, which is our big idea for the morning, goes very simply like this. God's plan is eternal. God's plan is eternal. Now, we might hear that, and it seems sort of sedate, and like, well, yeah, of course, I don't really care because God's eternal and this plan must be too. No, 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 but that matters massively. It's an enormous, oh, by the way. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13, and then we'll unpack this and see if we can apply it. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And this is God's word. Now, we've been studying the book of Ephesians now for several weeks. We've been moving at a pretty fair clip. So far, we've learned some really crucial things, like the entirety of the triune Godhead loves me. All of God comes to bear for all of my salvation. God loves me. And simply knowing that is what you give to the church that has everything, is that they would simply know and percolate and steep in that knowledge that God loves them. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to tell us that we were children of wrath, but God, in verse 4, has made us trophies of his grace. Because of that, now Jews and Gentiles are one in the Son, which is all of the backdrop for Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says very emphatically, as strongly as he can in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason. And then he gets interrupted by the Apostle Paul. Does this ever happen to you? You've got a thought, and all of a sudden, it just gets interrupted. And Paul's going to go off on this wonderfully lengthy, oh, by the way, just like in Ephesians chapter 1, it's really just two very long sentences, verses 3 to 14 and 15 to 23, just two very long sentences. The same way here, basically verses 2 to 13, even though our English translations try to block it up for us so that we can understand it, it's really just one very long sentence. Paul says, I'm going to pray for you for this reason. Everything that I've just told you in chapters 1 and 2, I'm going to pray for you. But, but oh, by the way, 
And then he drops this wonderful, wonderful, oh, by the way, on them. For this reason, I, Paul, and he bookends it here, a prisoner. Now, your translation might say for Christ Jesus. It's probably better of Christ Jesus. That's instructive. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of Nero, of the Roman Empire, or even the Roman guard that he's chained to. He's a prisoner of Jesus. Like we might have a tendency to think, hey, that's not how this is supposed to go. You're the Apostle Paul. You're the Apostle to the Gentiles. You're not supposed to be in jail. Oh, yes, he was. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he says in verse 2, oh, by the way, assuming that's a decent translation. It's a little bit more strong. It's like, hey, oh, by the way, you do understand what a hugongous, that's not really a Greek term. It's more of an English, New East Texas translation term. You do understand how hugongous this whole thing is, don't you? And then he just goes off on a tangent. Oh, by the way, you've been reading still an older map. There's a newer map. This plan of God's continues to unfold like a map, and there's more information that perhaps you're not fully internalizing, that you're not fully receiving, and therefore living out in the power and the majesty that God intends. So he says in verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship. Now, perhaps your Bible is a different translation than the ESV. It might say administration. It might say economy. If you're still rocking the King James with those little ifs at the end, good for you. Hard for a guy with a lisp to use a King James. Just going to put that out there. If yours is a King James, it might say something like a dispensation. The word is hoikonomia. It literally means the rule of the house. Hoikos is house, namas is law. The house law, the, the rule of the house. Now, Paul says, I want you to understand there's a new household administration. There's a new household rule. It's changed periodically through history. I'm assuming, he says, that you have heard of the stewardship, the administration, the dispensation, the economy of God's grace that was given to me for you. Do you guys understand, Paul says, how big of a deal this is? There's been different ages that have moved through biblical history. St. Augustine, sitting in North Africa in the 400s, said, if you distinguish the age, Scripture harmonizes. Even St. Augustine, 1,700 years ago, understood we must distinguish what particular age is happening in the biblical narrative that we're studying. There was the time after the garden, all the way up through Noah and the flood, and then the household rule changed between Noah and the flood and the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. After that, we have Abraham, and the nation of Israel is born, and there's a different sort of rule in place where the patriarchs are now God's revealed leadership and dispensation of grace in the world. It's coming through Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. And then after a time they find themselves in Egypt, God brings them up out of Egypt. And Moses comes and he gives them the law. And the household rules change yet again. Same God, salvation is always by grace through faith in the Messiah alone. But the rule of the household changes. And it stays that way for some 1,500 years. That's the map. And Paul says, oh, but let me just tell you, God's plan is eternal He's been doing a thing and unfolding it all along, and we didn't see it. It's been given to me, Paul, to give to you, Gentiles. You're a part of it, and you've been a part of it in the eternal mind of God forever. Now, that's incredible. He says in verse 2, It was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. A mystery is not a secret. A mystery is something that is hidden purposefully by God that is undiscoverable by man. 
Man cannot figure it out on his own. Let me say that as emphatically as I can. A mystery is something that is hidden by God that man cannot figure out or discover on his own. Reason and logic and rationale will not help us to discover this. It was hidden by God. It had to be revealed. The term Paul uses is actually revelation, apocalypsis. It had to be revealed. The veil had to be torn back by God. There were faint, faint clues all through the Old Testament, but it was hidden by God. That's the mystery. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Well, when did he write briefly? Well, that would be Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, and again in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. He's already written briefly. Now he's really going to, oh, by the way, and explain this more fully. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. We always knew that Messiah was promised. We always knew that Messiah was coming, but it's a way bigger deal than any of us understood. It's a way bigger event, the coming of the Christ, than any of us really dared anticipate. And oh my goodness, you Gentiles, it was always God's plan to enfold you into the coming of the Christ as well. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Now, this is an important little distinguisher. You can have a little bit geeky here. A lot of people like to say, oh, well, the church existed in the Old Testament. Not according to the Apostle Paul. <laughs> this was not made known in the Old Testament. It was not figure outable by human beings in the Old Testament. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, that's interesting. Paul's talking about the 12 disciples, that Jesus, by the Spirit, revealed to them, hey, this is what God is going to do. And you will be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the new map. This is the new plan. Verse 6, this mystery is, now he's going to explain very definitively. Here's the mystery that was slightly and faintly there, but the, the room was completely dark. We couldn't see it in the Old Testament because God hadn't turned on the lights. But now God has turned on the lights. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are, and he says this remarkable word, fellow heirs. What's true of the begotten is true of the adopted. They have the exact same rights and standing and name and affection and attention from the Father. He calls them fellow heirs. It's a word that doesn't exist any place else in Greek literature or in the Bible. Because Paul makes it up. Because there's never been before such a thing as a fellow heir. You can't have that. But Paul says, oh, but, but God's done a thing. And it's been his eternal plan. You Gentiles are now fellow heirs. I want you to imagine two houses down, somebody wins the Powerball lottery. And for whatever reason, it's $750 million, and you're not them. But this is Paul saying, but you are now. You are now. You are a fellow heir, a co-body. He says susoma. It's another word that doesn't exist because it doesn't make sense. You can't have co-body parts. But Paul says, but you Gentiles, your co-body parts with the Jews together were one in the Son. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery was not that somehow, someday, someway, God would save Gentiles. The Old Testament foretold that. It's in Isaiah, it's in Genesis, it's all through there. The mystery that nobody could see coming 
was that Jews and Gentiles would be together, fellow heirs, co-body parts of the same body. And that that principle translates through the millennia. Nobody could see that it was going to include, this, this body of Christ was going to include Philistines and Ninevites and Canaanites and French. <laughs> Nobody saw that coming. In the same body of Christ, you're going to have Aggies and T-Sips. This is amazing. Only the Redeemer could redeem that which is irredeemable. Nobody saw that coming. Now, easy with the amens back there. Yeah. Only God could make that thing that thing. And it's huge because what he says they do here. These people are now partakers of the promise in Christ. So, so the seed of Abraham, it's actually a person. It's not a people. It's not a program. It's not a policy. It's a person, and it's Jesus. It says there that he is the part, that we are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What does that mean? Through the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself ah, 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 and to one another. This is why we always say it that way. Not just the gospel is you die, you go to heaven one day. No, 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 no. It's the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself, to square the accounts, and to one another. Nothing left between you and me that would prevent us from having co-heir fellowship, co-body parts through the gospel. Verse 7, he says, this is my ministry of the mystery. He's called a diakonos. That's where we get a word for a deacon. It's uh, through the dust. I kick up dust as I serve. This is what Paul says. This is what I do. I kick up dust as I minister the mystery. I can't believe I get to be the one that says this to all of you, Paul says. Of this gospel, this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, the energy of his dynamicness was given to me, Paul says. It, it, it shouldn't have been given to me. Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, it, it, of all the people. And listen, I know how Paul feels. If I was in charge of anything, I wouldn't let me give the gospel. No way. But Paul says it was a gift. I didn't go looking for this. I didn't go interviewing for this. This is what God did. He took me. And if you remember the story in Acts chapter 9, he gets knocked off his horse. He gets sent to Antioch where the first Gentile church is. And God speaks to Ananias and Antioch and says, I want you to go look for the blind guy. He's going to be stumbling around. I'm going to make him the apostle to the Gentiles. And Ananias says, great, what's his name? And God says, yeah, about that. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias goes, I'm sorry, did you say Saul of Tarsus? The, the guy who uh, has literally been arresting and killing Christians, God says, you got it. My plan is eternal. I will show him how much he must suffer for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Ananias, I want you to baptize him. Ananias says, oh, I can't wait to hold that dude under. Bubble, 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 bubble. How are we doing in there? Getting wrinkly yet? Okay. And he lets him up, and he calls him Brother Saul, Jew and Gentile, now one in the sun. It's incredible. 
Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints. His name in Latin, Paulus, which he's renamed to, means little. He wasn't being falsely humble. This is the first marker of Paul's downward progression in sanctification. I'm the least of the saints, but technically it's I'm lower than the least of the saints. By the time he writes his last letter that we have, 2 Timothy, to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus, he will say, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst one. The more Paul was exposed to the gospel, the more he realized how much more desperate he was in need of the gospel. He wasn't getting better like we like to think. No, 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 no. He was more and more and more exposed to the need of the transformative power of the gospel. I'm the least of the saints here, Second Timothy. Man, I'm the chief of sinners. I say this all the time. Best definition of sanctification comes from the Old Testament. When God comes to Moses, when God comes to Abraham, what do they say? Here I am. That's your sanctification. Ever increasingly throughout your life, you go, here I, ugh, here I am, oh, here I am, but I am loved more profoundly, more perfectly, more passionately than any of this mess. Hot mess, you're looking at it, but God loves me deeply, devotedly, despite all of my depravity. And the more I grow in understanding that, the more I love the gospel, the more I love the giver of the gospel, our God. To me, now I'm the very least of all the saints. The grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Literally there, to preach the untraceable footsteps of, of Christ. We couldn't see this coming. We didn't know that God was going to do this wonderful, incredible thing. There's a new map. He's done something different. Now, I'm gonna keep harping on that to land this very importantly here in just a moment. Verse nine, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God is creator God, but even before he created anything, spiritual or physical, material or immaterial, he had in his mind to one day have a world and this age in which Gentile and Jew, black, white, male, female, free, slave, whatever, are one in the Son. It's been God's plan for all eternity. And despite all the opposition, despite all of the attempts for that plan to be thwarted and snagged, God gets it done. Now, we have to be reminded and encouraged of that despite all of the things that can and do and will go wrong. God's plan is eternal, and he gets it done. Now, this is amazing what he says. Verse 10. So that, here's the mission statement of the church, you might say. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It is the church that God uses to demonstrate his glory, goodness, greatness, and grace to the entirety of the angelic realm. Through the church, Peter says that angels long to look into these things. They don't understand it. Paul will talk about it in Corinthians. Angels don't understand. Now that's fascinating and that's really sort of helpful for and instructive for us. Angels aren't omniscient. Angels don't know everything. Not the wicked angels, demons, nor the good angels, the holy angels. They don't know everything. God says, I'm gonna shock everybody. 
I'm going to show you that my plan is eternal. Not even the angels knew what was coming. And so when Christ incarnates, comes to earth as a helpless, defenseless baby, vulnerable, defenseless, the angels just erupt in the night sky to the shepherds. They can't believe this is happening. But God's glory is being demonstrated to all the angels, wicked and holy. Now, this little quote that Paul uses, the manifold wisdom, it's this word, it's like kaleidoscopic, multifaceted, variegated, all the different facets of this wonderful gem of God's glory. It's being demonstrated not through a building, not through a program, through the church, where all these irredeemable, irreconcilables are redeemed and reconciled. And the angels go, my God, you must be something awesome. Now, this is loosely taken from some intertestamental literature from a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, where Solomon says, this is how you be a good king. You need wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. And Paul says, oh, you want to know what a good king is? It's God. He has wisdom. And how does he demonstrate? What's the trophy case of his wisdom? The church. Why is God doing this? to also show the wicked angels, the demons, that their boss, their captain, their leader, Satan, does not have wisdom. He does not win. He doesn't know everything that's going to happen, and he's beaten already. So our God in the heavenlies is smack-talking Satan through the church. Now, we have to understand that's happening in real time all about us as we speak. And that as we speak, as we gather together and we sing songs that, that we heard this morning and we agree with one another and we confess with one another, do you understand we are waging spiritual warfare? I know some of you want to like put on a cape and go out on the building and like wave a cross around. Cool. I don't know what that's accomplishing. But when you come and you sit next to somebody and you pray for somebody that you might not ordinarily pray for, you love them, you seek their good above your own, you can hear almost the shriek of the evil ones because the manifold wisdom of God is being demonstrated, declared, and proclaimed. It's that big of a deal. So to the church, we didn't see this coming. Oh, we thought it was all about Israel. And uh, No, 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 God's plan is eternal. Let me say this as strongly as I can. The church is not God merely reacting to and responding to Israel's failure. Oops, Israel didn't get it done. Hmm, what are we going to do now? I know, let's have a church. No, God's plan is eternal. This has been in his mind from before the foundations of the earth, Paul says. It's a really big deal. God's plan is eternal. Well, that's verse 10. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Ah, the coming of Messiah, the Christ event, God's eternal purpose and plan, boom, showed up in the most unexpected place, in a manger, in Bethlehem, covered in ick. It's not what we expected but it is precisely what God had in mind from eternity past. Verse 12, in whom we have two things. We have boldness. 
Hebrews says we approach the throne of God's grace with boldness. We charge right in, not with arrogance, not with audacity, but because of the standing that we have in Christ. What's true of the begotten, Jesus, is true of us. We have boldness. We don't sheepishly, as Matt said earlier, we don't sheepishly go, oh, God, if it's me again. Oh, gosh, I know. I know. I can't believe it either. I know. I said the same thing 20 minutes ago. I'm back again. That's not boldness, how we talk to Yahweh. Moses had to take off his shoes. He was on holy ground. We have ongoing, nonstop dialogue with the God of creation. We have boldness, Paul says. And we have, I love this, we have boldness and we have access with confidence. Now, this is a clever little play on words that Paul's doing. Remember, Paul writes the book of Ephesians as he's sitting in prison in Rome. Why is he in prison in Rome? The last quarter of the book of Acts, seven chapters, deals with why Paul is in prison for Christ or of Christ. It's because he was in Jerusalem, and there's an Ephesian guy named Trophimus with him, and the Jews think that Paul's trying to give Trophimus access. You're trying to take this Gentile across the dividing wall and introduce him to our God. They will not have it. So they seize on him to beat him up and to destroy him. Finally, the Roman soldiers come in and they rescue Paul. And there's just this crazy tumult and turmoil. And Paul goes, ooh, a crowd. I believe I'll preach. And so Paul starts to preach to them. And they're listening to him. And they're listening to him. They're like, this guy's pretty good. Isn't that Saul? Yeah, that is Saul. Wasn't he Gamaliel's? Yeah, sure was. Why, he's actually pretty good. And he just rolls and rolls and rolls. And then he says, and the Christ has come, and he's come also for the Gentiles. And they go, excuse me? And they seize on him to try to kill him again until the Roman soldiers come in with swords drawn, and they rescue Paul, and they take him with an army unit to Caesarea, and then they sail him to Rome so that he gets there completely safely on Rome's nickel. God's plan is eternal. Turns out it wasn't Paul that gave Trophimus access to God. It was the Messiah himself that did it. So Paul says, oh, I didn't give him access. I never took him across the wall. Turns out the son of God himself has given us access and boldness with confidence. Oh, Trophimus, you can have conversation and dialogue with Yahweh directly because you, Trophimus, are in Jesus. It's an amazing thing in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. No, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't ask, Ephesians. Wait a minute. If, if Christ has come, why are these bad things happening to Paul? He's our apostle. He's our friend. He pastored and preached for three plus years. Why is he in jail? This isn't supposed to be happening. Paul says, no, 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 no. This is great. This is your glory. I'm here for you. You are now one in the Son. God's plan is eternal. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't wonder. See, God's plan is eternal. Now, that has very important implications for all of us. Let me just give us three very quick ones. Three very quick implications. goes like this. Number one, God's people need God's Spirit and God's Word to understand God's plan. 
and there should be a collective, well, duh, on both floors and if you're watching remotely. Of course God's people need God's spirit and God's word to understand God's plan. Right. We know that. We, we get that. We, we know that. We just, we just don't do it. We have a tendency, all of us, to just go on autopilot and assume that we know what God's doing or to assume that we know what God is supposed to do because it's common sense, right? But no. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to God. We cannot figure it out apart from him. But the revealed things belong to us and our children forever. We have to be diligent to seek God's plan by his spirit as his people in his word. Or we're never going to understand fully what God is doing and we'll go through life confused, scratching our head going, hey, we do church periodically and stuff and we try not to do it. Why are these bad things happening? Why? No, 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 no. We need God's people, God's spirit, and God's word. See, the church is supposed to be the travel brochure for that which is yet to come. And there's something else coming. Point number two goes like this. The coming of Christ was the beginning of the end. See, God's plan is eternal, but he has now unfolded a new section of the map and we go, this is it. The Christ event, Messiah of Israel has come and he's for all the Gentiles as well. The end of history has already begun. See, they didn't know what Messiah was going to do from the Old Testament age, but now God has revealed, hey, this is it. Messiah has come. He lived perfectly in thought, word, and deed. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He was seen by hundreds, and he ascended, and he will come again. And there's not going to be a new fold in the map that opens up. We go, oh, we didn't see that coming. No, 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 no. Now we have the story, and now we got, get to live as though that's true because it is. And so if I may be so bold and intentionally ruffle a feather or three, because the church is the demonstration of the showplace of the glory of God in this age so that all of the angelic realm receives Yahweh's smack talk, then the church is to be the most intensely political organization in the cosmos. Now let me explain what I mean because it's probably not what most of us think. Technically, politics simply means how groups of people are organized and led. It means how resources are distributed and shared for the increasing good. That's what politics means. Come from Greek word, did you see? Polis, city, how the people actually interact. And we're supposed to see that most wonderfully manifest in the church. How people actually seek the greater good of others. That's love. Jew and Gentile couldn't be further apart, but sometimes it seems as though conservative and liberal or conservative and progressive or Fox News and CNN are even further apart than Jew and Gentile. It must not be so. I'm not talking about partisanship. I'm talking about politics. The kingdom has dawned. The end of history has already begun in the Christ event. This is the beginning of the end already. Now, it's taken some 2,000 years. It's not what anybody expected. I didn't think it would take 2,000 years. I was pretty sure when my first girlfriend broke up with me, Jesus would come, and he had to. I was a wreck. He tarried. He tarries still because he's got a plan. But it shall come to pass perfectly and precisely on time. Third point, 
It goes like this. Church matters. I, I know I'm supposed to say that because I'm a pastor and I, I, like, I work here. But I believe this with all cells in my being. Because scripture tells me that the church matters massively. God's plan is eternal. And in this age, this economy, administration, stewardship, dispensation, whatever, it's the church. All too often people talk about their church, what it, what it used to do for them, but it no longer does. So we're going to shop around. We're going to look for another church because things have changed. I mean, they used to have like, you know, the actual Pillsbury brand goldfish. Now they serve whales. I mean, what else? And I mean, you know, they used to have like actual sharkleberry thin Kool-Aid in the nursery. Now it's just like this generic great value stuff. I never, ever, ever hear people say, you know what? We left that church because we felt certain that it was no longer demonstrating God's glory and grace in the heavenly realms. We just felt like through that church, the, the, the rulers and the authorities weren't adequately being smack-talked. So we, we just left. No, like I've never heard that. But that's kind of the reason to leave a church. If it's failing at its mission, not because they, you know what, they chose the wrong color carpet on you. Sorry. But church matters. Maturing Christians stop looking at their church through the lens of how it's meeting needs and satisfying wants. Maturing Christians increasingly look at their church through the lens of how it's accomplishing the mission of demonstrating God's glory and being the politic, the ethic of the kingdom here and now. If not here, then where? If not now, then when? We have all that we need. We have the Christ alive, never to die. He's a death-proof king. We have his infallible and errant inspired word. We have all these people. We have the indwelling of the spirit of God himself. He could literally not be closer to us in this age than he is right now. So if we're just still waiting around for, yeah, but you know what? We still got to get them out of Washington. You're sorely missing the point. We are to be the kingdom ethic and aesthetic now. See, church matters and God's plan is eternal. Your presence and your participation matters. I hear it all the time. I hear, uh, you know, we just kind of didn't feel like it this morning. I get it. Sometimes I get a little cranky. It's true. But when we think rightly about God, when we think rightly about his church and its purpose, you ought to be chewing the face off anybody who gets in the way of you coming to church because this is where the kingdom happens in this age. Oh, it's going to get better there's going to be a day when the sky's going to tear open and he will physically be present. And I will step on your neck to get to him. I will. I'll knock anybody down to get to him. But until then, this is as close as we get. Now, let me do a little bit of preaching. Just to conclude this, just to land this plane. I know I've been doing a little bit of teaching and some geeky, greeky stuff. Let me just get as practical as I can. We say this all the time, but so much dysfunction, so much disappointment comes in the lives of people because they're frustrated and they're angry. I can't tell you how much frustration and anger I have heard among Christians over the last year. So much frustration, so much anger. Why is that? Well, we say it all the time. Frustration is a missed expectation. Anger is a blocked goal. We hear the Apostle Paul tell the people at Ephesus, don't be frustrated, don't be angry. You, you, you expected me to be like some easy life? <laughs> Paul says, I've been flogged by the Jews five times. 
That's 39 lashes. I had to use my watch to figure out that's 195 stripes the apostle Paul took. And he was not frustrated nor angry. That's what he expected. Because when we start to be used by God to smack talk amongst the heavenly realms, you can expect and anticipate opposition. It should come. Think about it. This whole why is everything so hard pretty much sums up the experience most of us live our lives with. It's because our expectations and our goals are completely out of whack. Most of us on autopilot live as though convenience and comfort and pleasure and joy are the highest possible gains. But no, 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 no. When we realize that the church is the hope of the world and it is the demonstration of God's glory in this age and that we get to be a part of promoting what God will certainly accomplish in his power. We are aligning our lives with that goal and objective and that goal or objective is never blocked. It's amazing to me when I see people serving on a mission trip or doing a local outreach like we did this week at our Hope Campus. Those people are not frustrated and angry. They're working hard. They got stuff under their nails that you would not believe, and they're joyful. It's really remarkable. It's really incredible. Now, admittedly, listen, this text that we're just finishing off is the most theological. It's not the most homiletical, but I think it is intensely psychological. Christians are intended to have peace because of what is true. Now listen, in the Old Testament, God promised Israel, if you obey, I will give you material blessing. If you disobey, I will give you material cursing. And all too many Christians still believe that that is the age in which they live. It's not. You're looking at a map made by Lewis and Clark in 1815. If that's still how you think this whole thing works. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I go to church occasionally. I sometimes give. I don't speak through school zones unless I'm late and there's not too many kids in the way. Where's all the bad, where's all the blessings, God? Why do these bad things keep happening to me? Oh, oh, you're trying to take an old journey across the prairie with your turnips and your taters in your lard. No, 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 that's a different age. Again, Augustine said, when we distinguish the age, Scripture harmonizes. This passage is telling us something remarkable that, candidly, I don't know that many Christians have fully internalized. It's telling us that in this age, all the blessings God can possibly give have been poured out on us already in the spiritual sense, and we cannot lose them. This is why the gospel is such good news. Many of us still live like, well, it's a transactional thing. I was a gold star, yay, red X, not so good, and oh shucks, God. No, stop that. That's not good news. That's law and oppression, and it leads to death. Literally, separation. Stop that. It's bad for you. Of course, there are consequences in, in this life for sin, and there's discipline. Of course, I'm not saying that there's not, but you never lose the blessings that God has poured out on you lavishly, exorbitantly. You never, ever lose those blessings. What you do and what I do is we simply remove ourselves from the enjoyment of those blessings. It's all we ever do. I sin. I say, God, that's good apart from you. And God goes, well, good luck with all that. And then I simmer in my own stupid grease. And I say, God, I'm sorry. I, I, it's not who you created me to be. It's not who you redeemed me to be. 
confess, I speak the same words, that this is how I am by my default, but you love me. And so I claim the cross. May you see nothing but the shadow of the Redeemer over me. And he goes, what took you so long? There's never this, well, you know, I mean, it's been, that's the 58,000th time. Isn't that right, Gabriel? Oh, it's 59,000th time? <laughs> it never happened once. All the blessings are mine and yours fully, and we can never leave, lose that. So many Christians lack confidence in their faith because they don't practically understand the glory of the gospel and the age of grace in which they currently live. Israel was a transactional age. The times have changed. The map has unfolded. And it's God's eternal plan in which we now get to be a part of this. It's a very exciting time to be alive. So Christian, be alive. It's what this world needs. It's Christians who are alive. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done. We've said already, but to redeem us, to reconcile us to yourself and, praise God, to one another. Father, I do pray for any in this room who is still just trying to slog through life transactionally, trying to acquire more gold stars than red X's. May they be redeemed and freed from that oppression. Father, if there's someone here this morning who is not yet a believer, we pray, God, that you would move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that they would recognize, believe, and fully be immersed in the truth that you love them, and that they would enjoy all the fellowship, all the co-heirness of being one in the son. Would you, Father, search the hearts of any in this place, listening remotely on either floor, who are still by nature objects of wrath, and would you transform them by your grace into a trophy of your grace so that all the angelic realm sees what a great good God you are. God, we love you. We love you because you love us. So we pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus.